It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Hey there, welcome to The Tint. I'm your host, Scott Fellman, and it's time for yet another foray into the world of aquariums from a slightly different perspective. You know, we've been talking a whole lot lately about creating aquariums that replicate specific habitats, specific ecological niches. It's kind of what we do here, right? Of course it is. Super rewarding. Yet, it's even more fascinating and rewarding to design an aquarium around a specific fish sometimes. Especially when it's one that you've coveted for so long, right? Now, we've all had that one fish which just sort of occupies a place in our hearts and minds and, you know, a fish that for whatever reason bites you and just never lets go, right? I I think every serious hobbyist has at least one of those kinds of fishes. I've had a couple, but I'll give you my favorite one and and maybe I'll touch on my second favorite. Well, here's my very favorite. Of course, it's also about the habitat. As a lover of these leaf litter habitats and leaf litter in our botanical style aquariums, I'm fascinated not only by this unique ecological niche, but by the, you know, organisms which inhabit it. I've went on and on and on and spoken at length about many of the microorganisms, the fungi, the insects, the crustaceans, which add the biodiversity of this environment. And of course, we've looked at some of the fishes which live there too. Um, Over the years, we've talked about a lot. One of my favorite all-time fishes and my absolute favorite kerosene is none other than the amazing sailfin tetra, Cranucus spilurus. This is truly an awesome fish. Not only is it attractive and morphologically cool, it has a great demeanor and behaviors which separate it from almost every other kerosene out there. It's almost cichlid-like in its behavior. It's definitely not the most colorful kerosene on the planet, but there's more to this fish than initially meets the eye. And it all starts with, with that intriguing name. The Latin root of the genus Cronocus means guardian of the spring. It's a really cool, even romantic sounding name that sort of evokes imagery and questions. I mean, does it mean the protector of a specific body of water? Or is it some honorary homage to, you know, everybody's favorite season? I, I'm not really sure, but you got to agree the name's pretty cool. In Greek, it's Krenokos, the god of running waters. It's even more cool, right? It's the shit. <laughs> the Krenukidae, also known as South American darters, is a really interesting family of fishes. And it includes, I think, as right now, about 93 or 94 species in 12 genera throughout the Amazon region. Most Krenukids are, well, how do we put it delicately? Chromatically unexciting, <laughs> i.e. gray, black, brown kind of fishes which tend to lie in wait near the substrate, which is typically leaf litter or aggregations of branches and twigs, feeding on insects and, you know, microinvertebrates that happen on by. And the genus Cronucus consists of just one species, our buddy Cronucus spolaris, a fish which shares habits and body shapes uh, that are more commonly associated with cyprinids, like barbs, than, and, and with cichlids, like epistos. It's just weird. The sailfin is sort of an exception to the drab thing. It's remarkably attractive for a simple benthic-loving fish. I mean, sure, on the surface, it's not the most exciting fish out there, especially when it's a juvie. But 
it's a fish you need to be patient with, a fish to search for, to collect, to hold on to, and to really enjoy as it matures and grows. As the fish matures in the classic ugly duckling style, it literally blossoms into a far more attractive fish. The males have this extended uh, dorsal and anal fin and larger, much more colorful uh, patterns than the females. You'll, you'll be able to tell right off the bat. Yeah, colorful, of course, is relative here, but when you see a group, you'll just notice the sexual dimorphism right away, even among the juvies. Individuals spend a lot of their time sort of sheltered under dead leaves, branches, roots, and aquatic plants, and they tend to hover and dart about sort of like, you know, different, not like your typical tetra wood. In fact, their behavior reminds me of the dart fishes of the marine aquarium world. They sort of sit and flick their fins, often moving in slow, deliberate motions. I've talked about this before, but it's almost a mysterious thing. Like when I try to count my fish, which is something I always do, especially with my rare ones, it's hard to count. Like I had a group of 12 of them in a 50 gallon aquarium and it took me forever to be able to count these fishes because what happens is they, they come out of the, they just sort sort of come out of the woodwork. They appear and then you go to count them. You move on to the next one and another fish either appears or disappears. It's like they're time shifting. I don't know what they're doing, but it's just very bizarre. The sailfin is a really interesting fish because it does feed in the daylight hours and it is actually a midwater feeder consuming, you know, particular organic matter like, um, you know, detritus and so forth. But it also uh, eats aquatic invertebrates, insects, bits of flowers, and even fruits like the cool items that form alectonous input, things that come from outside the aquatic habitat. We've written about that a lot. I know. It's just a really, really cool, interesting fish and an interesting habit. Oh, okay. Back now to my uh, digression here. I'm going on and on. I mean, what further distinguishes the sailfin from the other kerosens is the male, which has parental care. Yeah, you, you heard that correctly. Uh, parental care of its small clutches of eggs, which is usually like 100 and that's small for a kerosene, right? And during the larval stages of the fish, characteristics more commonly associated with cichlids than with kerosens. I mean, are you interested yet? This is cool, right? I, I'm telling you, I fell for this fish when I was a kid. I saw a cool pick of it in my, you know, my dad's well-worn copy of uh, William T. and his Inez's uh, exotic aquarium fishes, the classic treatise on tropical fishes. And I was just hooked from the start, especially when reading about the, you know, romantic etymology of the name. And it just seemed so mysterious and even unattainable, even in the 1930s when the book was originally written. Well, especially back in the 1930s, but it seemed downright exotic. And then tying it together with my love of those leaf litter strewn habitats, it was a combo that I just couldn't resist. I still can't resist. I never got this fish out of my system, and it literally took me like 30 plus years of being a fish geek before I ever even saw this thing in real life. And you know that I jumped at it when I had the chance. It's so worth the wait. The sailfin's got to be one of the most engaging and unique uh, fishes that I've ever had the pleasure of keeping. Yes, it's not the most colorful, it's just cool. Oh, and the other thing is they're known to vocalize. They produce this audible clicking sound that you can hear outside the aquarium. It's a really interesting phenomenon. Now, although they're a bit solitary in nature, I found that they've done really well in groups, sometimes forming these loose aggregations within the confines of the aquarium, you know, hovering over the leaf litter bed waiting for food. And they have that sort of social order, which they only seem to understand. Nobody else does, but it's very evident. It's a really fascinating set of activities, which makes them even more interesting and endearing. And you watch these fish for a long period of time. It's fascinating. They might be a bit shy initially when you introduce them to the aquarium. And they're rather cautious, kind of sedentary kerosens. They don't swim quite as actively as other ones. But getting them to feed regularly in the aquarium, while not difficult, may be a bit of a process. Because they're very cautious and tend not to stray too far from the botanical cover that they like to hide in. 
if you have other more attract, you know, active, <laughs> I said attractive, is that a Freudian slip? Other more active um, tetras and other fishes, they're going to be a bit more tentative at first. However, they're decent sized fishes, so they don't have as much to fear as you'd think, but they'll eventually overcome their initial shyness and pretty move pretty much confidently, if not slowly throughout the aquarium. But my advice is maybe you want to add these fishes first to your aquarium before you add the more active guys get these fishes feeding and settle in and you'll see a lot more of them and trust me once you keep this fish you'll sort of get it they're one of the most perfect fishes for the botanical style blackwater aquarium and they'll fit right into a really well thought out community of smaller fishes like the less hyperactive tetras or dwarf cichlids maybe some corridors catfishes they're probably one of the only kerosens which we can say has a real individual personality and if you're looking for that sort of it fish that's going to make your botanical style aquarium pop uh, and add a real presence, give some real consideration to this fish if you can find it. Trust me, having the guardian of the spring in your aquarium is worth the wait. Your leaf litter aquarium needs this fish. Now, I said at the outset of this podcast that there'd be another fish I'd talk about. Probably not going to go into as much detail on it because it's, it's so well known, but the black ghost knife fish, Stenarchus. Albifrons, I believe, is the current genus. It's a family Stenarchidae, uh, Apternatidae. It's been in so many different families over the years. But what a cool fish. If you ever research this beyond just what you see in the aquarium hobby, initial aquarium hobby stuff, it's pretty fascinating. Well, of course, it has a, uh, the ability to be an electric fish. It uses electrolocation to find its prey and position and um, establish communication with other members of its, of its clan. And it's not the most sociable fish in the world either. It can be a little bit crazy, so you want to keep one in a tank generally, unless you have a very large tank. I don't know anybody that's actually tried to keep multiple specimens together for any length of time. I suppose it's possible. I've just never done it. It's another one of those fishes that's held my fascination since I was a kid. I mean, it gets to be a foot long of 12-inch fish, a big, big fish, maybe even bigger. Uh, And being a knife fish, it has the ability to uh, ingest smaller fishes. It's not aggressive necessarily, mind you, but it's really shy, almost nocturnal. But there's something about this fish. And the cool thing about it is you can actually train it to eat from your hands. I've done that with mine before. And this fish is mysterious for a lot of reasons. Not only the name, there's a whole sort of mythology behind it. The, uh, the South American uh, jungle tribes uh, felt that the, the spirits of their departed ancestors would you know, take up residence in the, uh, in the Black Coast, and they never disturbed it. So back in the 1930s, when a guy named Fred Kochu uh, first did the exploring and, uh, and finding, rediscovering this Black Coast uh, knife, he relayed a story that you know, he, the first one he netted he thought was amazing. He held it up with his you know, native fishers that were helping him out, and they freaked out and scrambled away because you're not supposed to touch that fish. Of course, he knew that these things would be worth money and they'd be a big deal back, you know, in the United States and in Europe. So he had to get these out of there and had to figure out how to do it. And uh, it was sort of an Indiana Jones-esque story behind how he got them out. But um, the bottom line has become a sort of a staple fish in the aquarium hobby for a knife fish. And it's fascinating. The neat thing is for years it seemed so mysterious. And now I hear, you know, they're breeding them. They've been bred for years in Southeast Asia. I think they breed them in little ponds. I, I'm not aware of controlled breeding experiments. I, there probably have been people that have done that. If you hear anything on that, let me know. But I'm going on and on about this fish because I love that one so much. It's just another fish that if you have the right type of aquarium, what a perfect fish for a really cool botanical style aquarium, an intricate um, underwater, um, you know, I hate to use the word aquascape. What am I trying to say is underwater topography suits it well. It likes to hide its forager, it eats worms and so forth. But a great fish that you should definitely, definitely check out and consider adding to your collection if you have a large enough tank for it. Um, You know, 
we all have that one fish. Some of us have two fish or 20 fish. It goes on and on. I'm just giving you a couple of my favorites and there's dozens more in the saltwater world and all over the place. But that's what keeps us passionate about this hobby. It keeps us going. It keeps us dreaming. It keeps us striving. It keeps us searching. And I think that's fantastic. Find yours. Stay resourceful. Stay passionate. Stay relentless in your pursuit of this fish. Share it with others. And always stay wet. Until next time, this is Scott Feldman from Tenant Aquatics with my little fish story. Thanks for spending part of your day with me, and I look forward to seeing you on the next installment of The Tent.